24. Matthew 24. We're uh, continuing on studying the Gospel of Matthew. Um, and those of you who know the scriptures may be saying, oh man, that's a very non-Christmas-like passage. What's going on here? How are we going to engage this? Actually, uh, interestingly, if you study the history of Advent, Advent has historically been a time where the church looks to the second coming of Christ as we wait and watch as we get ready to celebrate that first coming. It's been historically the way that the church has, uh, has processed Advent. It's been a time each year where we've looked intentionally to the kingdom that is to come, the, the not yet portion of the kingdom that Jesus announced in the Gospel of Matthew. And so this year, we're going to step into that in a very intentional way. We're calling it the gospel of the Advents, plural, the, the reminder that Jesus came and the reminder that Jesus is coming again. And we're going to do that by studying these passages in Matthew 24 and 25 over the next four weeks. Um, I, I want to start out in, uh, with a little bit of a heady concept. I'm just going to ask you to stick with me. I know uh, this may feel a little tricky to start with, but... Um, Theologians and sociologists together talk about an idea called teleology. Teleology comes from the Greek word telos, which gets translated end or uh, completion. And telos, from a secular perspective, is defined this way, or teleology is defined this way. The explanation of a phenomena in terms of the purpose they serve rather than the cause by which they arise. So the, the idea is that we're talking about end purposes, end goals, the telos, rather than the cause, the means along which they journey. Theologically then, the idea, the teleological idea is this, the doctrine of design and purpose in the material world. So the idea is that there's a specific way that God has designed all things to be, including you and I, and that there's a specific end to which we're called to. So to give you the idea, here's an example. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, the very first question is this. What is the chief end, that would be translated telos, of man? And the answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So that's a teleological statement. So the study of teleology, the idea of teleology, is that there are specific ends that God has called us to, and that those ends determine the way that we act. So the, the, if the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, we live and we engage the world in a certain way based on that end. That's teleology. Now here's the challenge. Over the course of the last 50 years or so, those agreed-upon ends, the foundations that are the agreed-upon purpose or goal that we can all kind of uh, gather around, have begun to erode. Those foundations have begun to shift. There was a former missionary named Leslie Newbegin. Uh, he was a British missionary who spent several decades in India through the 60s and the 70s into the early 80s. India at that point was largely a pre-modern culture. And Newbegin then returned upon retirement to England, which had begun a transition to a post-modern culture. And what Newbegin wrestled with in that transition 
was the, these shifts of ends, the, the, um, the general understanding of truth and what we're grounded in with truth. Uh, Newbegin, back in 1986, wrote a book called Foolishness to the Greeks. I want you to hear uh, what he said. This is a, a fascinating statement. The question, what is true happiness, can only finally be answered on the basis of the answer to another question. What is the chief end of man? But the age of reason has banished teleology from its way of understanding the world. So happiness has no definition except what each autonomous individual might give it. Each individual not only has the right to pursue happiness, but to define it as he wishes. Who then has the infinite duty to honor the infinite claims of every person to the pursuit of happiness? The answer of the 18th century is familiar, the nation state. Now let's just pause for a second. If we go to the American Declaration of Independence, that's the statement that he's referring to. Remember, uh, all Americans have the right to three things, right? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so the pursuit of happiness in that 18th century time shifted to the nation state. This is what Newbegin says going on. The nation state then replaces the holy church and the holy empire as the centerpiece in the post-enlightenment ordering of society. The nation state has taken the place of God as the source to which we look for happiness, health, and welfare. Now, uh, Newbegin went on to say later in that book that as postmodernism continues in postmodern cultures, it's likely that the church will continue on but the focus of this church will no longer be solely the kingdom of, the God, of God, but an infusion between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. That politics and their ends, the ends of the nation state, would become infused with the kingdom of God. Now, apart from that being a prophetic utterance in 1986 uh, for the world that we're in in our current cultural moment, why I want you to wrestle with that idea is because Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 is dealing with a very similar idea, just infused with the nation of Israel. So what's happening in Matthew ch chapter 24 is that Jesus is addressing the foundations of where the nation state of Israel and the kingdom of God seemed in the, the ears of his original ear hearers to be overlapping with one another. And in that process, as the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God began, became intertwined, what happened was that they had a difficult time understanding how the kingdom of the world or any individual parts of the kingdom of the world could cease to exist while the kingdom of God continued forward. In that same way for us, when our ends are something that we are defining and we're given the the nation state the right to uh, embody those ends, we in the same way have a difficult time understanding how those things, the, the, the foundations that are around us that so many of us have felt shaking over these last seven or eight months, can shake and even fall while the kingdom of God continues. Which is why I believe Matthew 24 is such a fascinating passage for us to dig into in this moment. Because what Jesus is saying at the heart, at the root, is that no matter what happens in the world around us, the hope that we have is in Christ. The kingdom of God will continue to go forward. 
even if the kingdoms of the world fall. He's calling our, our gaze back to the purposes for which we've been created, the end. And so I'm going to ask Bill to come, uh, and Bill, once again, is going to read for us. One of the joys of live stream is we get to have Bill come read with us again, which is wonderful. And so Bill is going to read for us Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 to 28. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will be not left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us. When will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take his cloak, his, uh, not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter nor on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform 
performed great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Thank you, Bill. Would you pray with me? Jesus, this is your word to us, to that generation and to our generation. So God, will you now, by your spirit, empower the proclamation of your word, that we would hear from you. God, I pray that you would take preparation and ideas and you would catch them on fire by your spirit. God, that it would not be my words that remain, that my words would fall to the ground and be forgotten, but that your words, empowered by your spirit, would find fertile soil in our hearts. God, open our eyes and open our hearts to you. We ask you to do the work that only you can do. And so do it in us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Matthew 24 has long been within the evangelical church a, uh, a point of controversy, a challenge to interpret and understand. And I'm not going to pretend to have all the details figured out. I'm not going to even try to hit all of the, the trivia points within the 28 verses that you heard. And especially as we dive into the second half of Matthew 24 next week, I'm not even going to attempt. There'll be no charts and graphs. I'm not going to give you a date for a return. Uh, so if you're looking for that, I'm sorry. You're going to have to turn it off now. Um, but what I do hope that we're going to see is the heart of what Jesus was trying to communicate to his disciples and the heart of what he's trying to communicate to us. And so I want to look at four general concepts that are going to be kind of what we're going to uh, dive into, the way we'll surround our thinking today. So first, two questions. The two questions that the disciples ask become the interpretive device that we need to use throughout these passages. So we're going to start with those two questions. Then we're going to look at the signs that Jesus gave us to expect and the specific instructions that he gave and then finally, we're going to loop back to the center of the passage because the heart of the passage is really found in the central call. So two questions, signs to expect, specific instructions, and finally the central call. So um, remember, we're coming out of these, uh, these woes that Jesus spoke to the Pharisees, this, um, this diatribe that he had just kind of laid into them. And it's kind of, it almost seems like as they're leaving, imagine them leaving the temple courts, walking back towards Bethany. It seemed that Jesus stayed in Bethany every night during Holy Week. And so he was going back to Mary and Martha's house. And as they came up the valley and up toward the Mount of Olives, they would be able to look back and see the temple. And as they saw the temple, I kind of picture the disciples trying to like um, cheer Jesus up, change the subject, you know, like move away from all this anger and all this stuff that was kind of going on. And they said, look at the buildings. Aren't the buildings beautiful? And Jesus, uh, not to be uh, persuaded from the line that he's in, uh, makes that statement. You see all these, do you? Uh, 
truly I say to you, there will not be here one stone left upon another that will not be thrown down. This would have been an incredible statement to the disciples. Understand, the the temple that they're looking at, the temple that Herod built that is almost completed in Jesus' day, is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's a massive edifice that would be, it would be impossible for them to consider that the building itself would come down. But beyond that, the temple is the center of Judaism. Jerusalem is the center point for all of God's work within the world. And so this idea that the temple would be destroyed would have just been mind-blowing to them. And so um, we see Jesus go and sit down on the Mount of Olives, and they ask two questions. So uh, if you're reading along, this is in verse 3. Tell us, when will these things be? First question. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age. So the first thing I want you to see is those two questions to the disciples and to Matthew relate to one another. So if that is gonna happen, so the first question, when will these things be? What are these things? This is the temple being destroyed. When will that happen? But for them, there's a specific tie then to the end of the age. If the temple is going to be destroyed, then clearly that will also be the end of the age and the coming of Jesus, that he would, uh, he would return. And those look like two different questions, the sign of your coming and the end of the age. But in Greek, they're tied together, so it's really a, a unified thought, the sign of your coming and the close of the age. That's the word telos, the, the end of the age. What's happening here is they're asking two specific questions. I believe that the best way to interpret this, again, lots of people have lots of opinions and people disagree on this, but I believe the best way to interpret this is roughly that Jesus is answering those two questions in order. So we're going to spend the majority of today looking at the answer to the first question, which is when will these things be? And then next week, we're going to look a majority of the time at the second question. What will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age? But, but as we do that, what I want you to see is they see these two things together in the same way that for many of us, we feel those two things together. There's been so many conversations that I've had over the last seven or eight months where people have said, is, is this it? Like, is, the, is this the, referencing some of these end times teachings? Is this the end? Like, we're seeing all of this happen between the, the virus and the worldwide pandemic, between the, the social structures shaking, racial unrest, and some of the things that are happening, not just in America, but all around the world. The political crisis that we feel and the way that those foundations are shaking. Is this the end? And that's the same thing the disciples felt. It, if the temple would come down, it must be the end of the age. And what Jesus is going to unpack for them is that it's, it could be the beginning, it could be a sign along the way, but that there's still much more to come. And so with those two questions, we, we want to jump in specifically to the signs that we're going to ex- expect, because Jesus is going to answer them very specifically. Uh, see that no one leads you astray, and he begins to then unpack some of those signs. But before we get into those, um, all scholars agree, one of the few things that scholars agree upon in Matthew 24, is that Jesus is speaking prophetically. And in order to understand prophetic speaking, I need to show you that there's a distinction between prophetic speaking and a historical timeline, the way that we see history. So prophetic speaking might be uh, graphically displayed like this. 
So that's the prophetic view. It looks like a bullseye. When you look at it um, from this angle, it looks like a, a very specific concentric circles one inside of another. That's the prophetic view. But the historic view looks different. The historical view is the same image from a different perspective. And what you see is that you can now, with the historic view, see a timeline that the prophetic view, do you want to go back to that for a second? That, that prophetic view doesn't see. So when prophets are speaking, by and large, they're seeing all of the events over the course of a period of time in one snapshot. And as they speak those truths, it, it becomes important for us as those who interpret to understand that there is a historic view that spreads out over a timeline, and it's not different it's the same view, it's just seen from a different angle. So when Jesus is speaking, what's going to happen is he's going to move back and forth in a pretty rapid fashion, uh, even sometimes with the same statement having two different meanings, from what's happening right then and what's to be expected in the next period of time, we're going to talk about that next week, and what's happening uh, over the course of the entirety of history until the end of the age, until Jesus returns. And while good people can disagree on exactly what's what, I think you're going to find that there are some consistencies that make sense as we journey. So Jesus responds to their question. Their question is, when will these things be, the destruction of the temple, and what will be the sign of your coming, and the close or the telos of the age? Starting in verse 4 through verse 14, Jesus is going to use the word telos three more times. There's a, a clear indication to me that that first section of teaching, while he's specifically answering the question about the temple, is also intended to reference the end of times. That's why he keeps coming back to the idea of the telos. And so Jesus, as he's responding, is uh, responding to both questions at the same time in this first section. And it's important to get that Matthew, as he's recording what Jesus is saying, is recording what Jesus is saying as a disciple who was listening to Jesus at the time, whose worldview wove together the temple and the end of time. So he would have seen these two things as, as together. Even though we now know the temple was destroyed in AD 70, and we're now in 2020, so there's a big gap. That historical view spreads way out. It's at least going to be almost 2,000 years, right? But Matthew saw it right together because he, his worldview was such that if the temple was destroyed, the end must be here. And so we need to understand that as, as we go. So Jesus begins to answer, and, and he's going to unpack for us at least nine different things. I pulled out nine of them um, that are signs of the end of the age. So let me walk through a few of them. First, he says there are going to be false prophets and teachers that are going to come. There are going to be those who are going to teach false doctrine, and you should be aware of the fact that those who are teaching are not always teaching the truth. Then he said because of that, there will be many that are led astray. So many who desire to believe in God will be led astray by those who are false teachers teaching them wrong doctrine. He says there'll be wars, and rumors of wars. So there'll be uh, clashes that will happen in small ways and in large ways. And then he goes on to say that in those large ways, nations will rise against nation. 
that there will be a political, uh, th- there'll be political strife where uh, nations will have uh, war against other nations. But there'll also be, in addition to the political strife, famines and earthquakes. So he's talking now not just about the geopolitical tension, but also about ecological and natural disaster that's happening. Now understand, uh, famine and earthquakes would have represented for them things like economic disaster, recession, depression, those same kinds of ideas that would have come because of famines and earthquakes. So he said, expect famines and earthquakes, expect tribulation and suffering. Expect that life will not be easy for those who are believers during this time. Expect conflict between people People who seem to be on the same team fighting against one another, having conflict against one another. An increase of lawlessness, a lack of uh, agreement on what has been foundational ethical beliefs, foundational truths. Now instead, people move away from those foundational beliefs. There's an increase of lawlessness. And the love of many growing cold. Those who speak the name of Jesus, declare that they're following Jesus, seem to grow cold in their pursuit of Christ. I think you can see that what Jesus is talking about may certainly have been what will happen between AD 33 and AD 70 when the temple is destroyed, but also signs of the world uh, that's wrestling, that's waiting. The signs of the, the world that is waiting for the return of Jesus, the hope that we have in Christ. In fact, the way Jesus is going to say it in uh, verse 8 is, all these are but the beginnings of birth pains. Now, as a man, I don't want to specifically talk too much about what I perceive labor to be like, because there are several women in the room who would probably um, argue with my ability to speak that. But what I can tell you is that um, there's this thing that happens if, um, at least in York Hospital, when we went to deliver in York Hospital, there's this machine that they hook the mom up to. And the machine, I, I get for, for a way that I really don't understand the purpose, measures things like the contractions that are happening, which directly relate to the amount of pain that the mom is in. Uh, what's really evil is that men can't help but be competitive. It's just like hardwired into us. And so I'm literally just sitting and staring at the machine because I'm so fascinated by, look, the numbers keep getting higher. Ooh, look, that's a good one. And of course, Amanda's over in the bed saying, I know, right? Like she, I get it. But I just, I, I'm watching the numbers, right? I just, the numbers are getting bigger. Isn't this exciting? Uh, that, Jesus is saying this, that as the, the birth pains continue, you're going to see this increasing striving. So if as I was going through those nine things, you said, man, that sounds like 2020, you're right. Because he says the birth pains are going to start and they're going to continue and that like birth, we lean into the pain because we know that there is great hope on the other side. That as believers in Jesus, there's a response that we are to have to those kinds of birth pains, to wars and rumors of wars, to hatred between people, to the striving and the wrestling that we see, to lawlessness in the world around us. Our response is to be, as believers in Jesus, we lean into that pain because we understand the hope that is to come. And so Jesus gives three specific ways to respond to believers. 
The first is, don't be led astray. So uh, you see it there in verse 5, that many will be led astray. And he says in verse 4, see that no one leads you astray. So how do you do that? There's good teachers out there who are all teaching different stuff. What do we do? Well, we come back to the scriptures. We tie ourselves, anchor ourselves deeply to the word of God. As I, over the course of the last 20 years of ministry, have looked at a variety of different theological ideas to try to understand exactly what the scriptures say, I've consistently sought to meet with older men who are tied deeply to the scriptures. In fact, many of them, I literally say this, I'd like to meet with you once a month or so, I'd like to process with you what I'm learning, and if I sound crazy, I want you to tell me that I'm crazy. Because I I want you to tie me back to the scriptures, that we would be, as a people, tied to the scriptures. As followers of Jesus, the way that we're not led astray is that we would engage the truth of the scriptures. So the first thing is don't be led astray. Second thing is don't be alarmed. Keep calm. Relax, everybody. Take a deep breath. Yes, there's all kinds of craziness going on. Yes, the world seems to be turning upside down, but relax. Don't be alarmed. This is to be expected, and as the Richards family so clearly pointed us to, there's hope in the midst of it. The hope that we have in Christ means that we don't need to be alarmed at all that's going on in the world around us. So don't be led astray. Don't be alarmed. And then finally, in verse 13, he said, but the one who endures till the end will be saved. Endure. Stand firm. We're going to come back to that verse and really dig into that in a minute. But Jesus says, don't be alarmed. Don't be led astray. And put your feet down. Stand firm. Don't give up ground. Endure till the end. So Jesus gives some signs for us that remind us of what's to come. But then in verse 15, the the subject seems to change. There's a difference in the way that the words uh, start to come to us and we start to hear a change in tone. Uh, So verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So now he's giving specific instructions to a specific people in a specific time. Okay, so the abomination of desolation, there's tons of different ways to interpret it. Uh, There are some theologians who believe that it had already happened and that Jesus was pointing back to that as a sign of what was to come. There are many theologians that say there were a series of things that happened in the 60s AD that could have been interpreted as the abomination of desolation. I would argue that Jesus was pointing to some specific thing that would have been clearly understood by those who were listening to him then in that decade between AD 60 and AD 70 that was a sign of what was to come. There are others who believe that that still hasn't happened yet. And as the temple at some point in time will be rebuilt, there'll be uh, some abomination that will be a part of that. There's, uh, again, good people can disagree on the way that that works. But I think what Jesus is saying is this. There's going to be something very specific coming, and when that comes, you're going to see this sign, and you're going to see tribulation come in, and there's a specific response that you should have to that tribulation. So he says you should flee to the mountains, you should expect that those who stay are going to suffer, and you should expect false messiahs, not just false teachers now, but those who, who say that they're the messiah. Now historically, before AD 70, 
this, this happened. Believers in Jesus actually fled to the mountains. Those who left faced very, very difficult persecution. What would have been understood to be, uh, uh, verse 21, there will be a great tribulation such as not has been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. There are some scholars that believe that there were more Christians as a percent to total martyred during those couple years before the destruction of the temple than at any point in history that Christians were being killed at a percentage that was so dramatic to the Christian church as a whole. So there was persecution that was there. And that when that happened, Jesus was saying very specifically now the answer to the question, when will these things happen? Well, Jesus is going to say, in fact, um, in the passage we're going to look at next week, Jesus is going to say, within this generation, a generation biblically is 40 years, 40 years was understood to be a generation, Jesus was likely saying this in roughly AD 33, and by AD 70, the temple was destroyed. Within that generation, there would be those who would see this come to pass. But his advice is what I want us to look at, because it's profound. He says, first, when you see this starting to happen, you see the tribulation, you see the abomination of desolation, flee to the mountains. Why? Why not stay and fight? Why not stay and push back? Why not guard the temple? Why not step into the battle? Run away because we're afraid? No, run away because that's not the most important thing. See, Jesus was going to not just die and rise again and ascend to the Father, but he was going to send to us the Spirit. And what Paul tells us is that we now are the temple of God. And so what he's saying is, you can run away. Because unless the nation state and the kingdom of God are intertwined, there's no reason for you to stay. Your hope is not in the city Your hope is not in the political structure. Your hope is not in the temple, the religious activity. Your hope is in God. And so flee to the mountains. Get away. And if you stay, by the way, those who uh, stay within the temple who have placed their hope in the political structure, who have placed their hope in the religious activities, who have placed their hope in the kingdom of this world, will suffer in a disproportionate way because not just will there be physical suffering, But there's going to be an emotional tearing because of the recognition that the place in which they've put their hope isn't a solid foundation. Those of us who place our hope in earthly things, when the ends, remember the telos that we talked about at the beginning, shift to something that's not solid, we experience this tearing because the temporal things can never fulfill the eternal longings. And see, what what Jesus is saying is it's good to flee. (laughs) Go to the mountains. Because what you need, what will actually fulfill your longings and desires, what will give you what you need, is found in him, not found in any of those structures. And then he says there's going to be many false messiahs. Now, these are not just false teachers. These are people who come saying, we have the answer. I alone have the answer. Follow me, and if you follow me, you're going to be able to do X, Y, and Z. You're going to be able to see X, Y, and Z. You're going to be able to, uh, to fulfill these longings. And he says, don't buy it. Don't buy it. There will be those who come, and they will act as though they are the Messiah, even acting as though they are Jesus returning, returning again, as those who say that in them there's hope. And Jesus says, don't buy it. 
in me there is hope. And then he gives us what, what I think is a really helpful reminder, one that we should come back to on a regular basis. He says this, um, verse 27, sorry, I couldn't find it for a second. Verse 27, for as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. He says, you will not be able to miss it. If you wanted to miss it, you couldn't miss it. That's what, what Paul says in Philippians chapter two, that uh, every eye will see him, that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When Jesus returns again, it's not gonna be something that we have to sift through. I wonder if that's him. I wonder if that's the one. I wonder if we go over here, if we follow that person, if we just do this, then we'll find him. Jesus says, no, when he returns, you will know it. Like lightning flashing across the sky, you will know. It's kind of a, a, a rough word picture, um, but I think the best interpretation of that uh, verse in verse 28, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures gather, is that same idea that vultures know where the corpse is. Like they know for sure that's where it's at. And so they uh, go to follow it, and you know that it's there because of the vultures. It's a, it's a rough picture, but Jesus often uh, mixed in some difficult images, and I think that's what he's doing there. What he's saying is this. The return of Jesus, the, the second coming, will be so clear there will be no doubt. And the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem will be that clear as well. You're going to see both of those things, and he's going to go on to explain uh, all of those things. But I want to go back into two verses that we skipped over. Um, it's, it's a little difficult to see in English, but uh, in the Greek, verses 13 and 14, like, jump off the page. Because all the way up until verse 13, Jesus is speaking in the plural, and after verse 15 and on, he's speaking in the plural, But in verses 13 and 14, he's speaking to us individually. Let me read for you. He says this, But the one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus is emphasizing for us two specific calls that we need to press into during this season and every season, during the Advent season, as we wait and watch, as we prepare for the first coming celebration, and we prepare, as Jesus is going to call us to in these next several weeks, for the second coming as well. He says two things. First, endure till the end. Redouble our efforts and desires at discipleship, at apprenticeship. Push in to what it means to follow Jesus. The word that he uses in Greek is hupomeno, and it's a, a, a military term. It's actually a very technical term. And so we here endure to the end, but it's really um, like hold your ground from a military perspective. It's, a, um, it, it's a, a, a very active command to not allow any encroachment on the territory. What he's saying is this, as all of this stuff happens around you, you may feel as individual as the singular person that he's calling out in verse 13. Remember, he's talking to plural, plural, plural yous, and then he says, you endure till the end. 
You may feel like everybody around you has fallen away. You may feel like the culture around you is going crazy. Endure till the end. Hold your ground. Like, in an active, militaristic way, don't allow any encroachment on the territory that has been gained by Jesus. And the root word, meno, is one that maybe you remember when we looked at John chapter 15. It's the word that gets translated abide or remain. That word meno, Jesus says, remain in me, abide in me. See, what he's saying is guard that abiding, guard that rest that you have in me as central to what it means to be a disciple. Guard the heart of your abiding so that out of abiding, everything comes. So as you act as a follower of Jesus, act out of a place of abiding. So as you interact in the world around you, interact in the world around you out of a place of abiding. As you engage in all of the systems of the world, the kingdom of this world, in which we are placed for this moment, do that as we abide in Christ. What he's saying to his disciples is you will be tempted away from these things, but guard that ground. Don't move. Stay deeply connected. What we say from an apprenticeship perspective is that the first step of being an apprentice of Jesus is to be with him and to remain with him. And it's out of that place of being with him that we begin to become like him and we begin to do the things that he's called us to do. And so we we have to stand firm. So the first call is a call to discipleship. The second call then in verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. So he says first be disciples and then be on mission. Now this is a helpful corrective to us because what he doesn't say is all of these geopolitical events will unfold and then the end will come. What he doesn't say is all of this tribulation that I've talked to you about, all of these events that I've told you are coming, they're going to happen, and then the end will come. He doesn't tie the return, the end, to the kingdom of this world, but he ties the, the end, the return, the telos, to the mission of God. He says there is a, a relationship, but the relationship isn't to all of these events. The relationship is to the gospel of the kingdom being proclaimed in all the nations. It's as we engage the mission of God, that's when the end will come. And so he specifically says, don't just stand firm, but stand firm on mission. Be looking with eyes open to the world around you. I know I've said this a bunch in the last seven to eight months, but this is an incredible opportunity that we have to live the gospel out in a way that proclaims hope to the world around us. And I keep saying it because I'm not sure you're getting it yet, and I'm pretty sure I'm not getting it yet. There's so much opportunity that we're not yet engaging. And the beauty of us being back on live stream, which I hate, is that it shows us that the opportunity is not over yet. We're still in the middle of this. And there's still an opportunity. God's faithfulness has said to press in. Mark Sayers, in his book, Reappearing Church, talks about the idea that transition always leads to renewal. That when when people live in transition, it's in those transitions that the gospel has opportunity. And then he makes the statement that crisis always creates transition. So if we're in the middle of a multiple global crisis, if we have all of these things that feel like they're shaking around us, 
Sayer's point is that the renewal of the church, the people of God, the, the softening of hearts and the readiness of people to hear the truth of the gospel is tied specifically to all of those crises, to all of that transition. And so for us, we're not called simply to be people of God who are holding our own ground, who are uh, creating borders around our lives and keeping the ground of Jesus safe. Yes, absolutely, stand firm. Don't allow any encroachment of the enemy. But also recognize that the hope that you have is the hope that the world around you needs. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all nations. And then the end will come. The Advent season should develop in us a longing for Jesus to come again and set all things right. Yes, a reminder that Jesus came. Yes, the beauty of the manger and the reminder of the sacrifice of Jesus at the cross. Yes, absolutely. But also a reminder that he who came will also come. And that there will be a moment in time, in history, in that historical perspective that we looked at earlier, where Jesus will return and all that is wrong will be set right. And the fact that because of disease, because of the way that the world is in this moment, you have to watch me on a computer screen, it should remind us that all that has been wrong has not yet been set right. That as we look at the turmoil of the world around us, we should say, yeah, we need him. We need him to come again. There should be a longing that's in our heart. Our hope is not in a miracle cure for this virus. Our hope is not in a political system that will set the world as we know it right. Our hope is not in some kind of social revolution that allows us to care for and love one another well. Our hope is in Jesus alone. That's it. And the Advent season draws us back to that that truth. To say, we don't primarily need the kingdom of the earth to be fixed. We primarily need the kingdom of God to come. And so I want to look right at you. I wish I knew uh, how to look right at you through the camera and tell you this. The deepest longings of your heart, the, the things that you long for, regardless of what the world around you says, will never be met by temporary things. The Bible is going to tell us over and over again, you can chase after all of it, whether it's money or power or harmony or family or love or relationships, whatever it is, you can chase after all of it. And it's never going to truly satisfy you. The only thing that will satisfy you is the end for which you were created, the telos. And that is the person and work of Jesus, that you would be glorifying him and enjoying him forever. And that same thing is true for everybody around you. There is no one who will be satisfied by the things of this world. There is no one who will ultimately be satisfied by the kingdom of the earth. 
All of us, every person that you see on the street, your neighbors, the people that you work with, the people that you're interacting with day to day, all of us have the same end, the same telos, and that's to be fulfilled by him alone. And so we're called by Jesus' words to press in to discipleship and to mission as we wait and as we watch for the first coming and the celebration that comes with Christmas and the second coming, that he one day will come again and all that's wrong will be made right. So I want to pray over us. The worship team is going to come and uh, lead us in a response time. And I want to simply ask this. I, I want to ask you just to, uh, to close your eyes and put your hands out. I know it probably feels weird in your living room or your kitchen or wherever you're at right now. But just put your hands out and l- let's just pray and remember the truth of who Jesus is and what it means for us. Lord Jesus, in my own heart and on behalf of my brothers and sisters, I confess that I have too often been concerned about the things of this world. I've too often failed to see that it's only in you that I can find hope, I can find satisfaction and fulfillment. And so God, as I open my hands, I ask you to help me to release those things. And I pray, God, that you would fill me up, fill us up with that which will truly satisfy. That we would be satisfied in you alone. And that on mission, we would point others to the life that is truly life. And so Jesus, help us to watch and to wait, to stand firm, and to be people on mission. Because then the end will come. In Jesus' name. Oh, 
that storm was moved for good For the Lamb had conquered death And the dead rose from their tombs And the angels stood in awe For the souls of all who come To the Father are restored And the church of Christ was born
is a season of watching and waiting. And I pray that during this Advent season, you would find yourself watching the horizon for Jesus' return, waiting for Jesus to come in the recognition that he who came will come again. And so now, people of God, receive this good word. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord be gracious to you, making his face to shine upon you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance, his gaze, and may you know wherever you are that he sees you. And as he does, may he bring you peace. Thanks for tuning in today. As you go into this week, may we be people who bear the grace and peace of Jesus to the world around us. In his name, amen. Thanks for joining us.